Well, today we're going to um, do a biblical study on the topic of church elders. And um, we will not be able to say everything that there is to say about elders in one sermon, um, but I intend to cover a decent amount of ground in hopes it'll be helpful to you, uh, not only for today's vote, but for future votes if we have them, if the Lord sees fit to bless us with the opportunity to vote on another elder in the future, this is going to come in handy, I hope. So let me address this um, right here at the beginning. You might be sitting there saying, why do I need to know about church elders? Isn't that for church elders? <laughs> why do I need to know as a normal Christian why do I need to know what the Bible teaches about church elders if I'm not one and I don't have the desire to become one? That's a fair question. And I want to answer that concern. Here's three reasons right here at the beginning why every Christian needs to know what the Bible teaches about elders. One is each Christian needs to know God's requirement for church elders so that they can properly affirm those who are biblically qualified and thus bring glory to God by obeying Him in this matter. So if we were to just reword that a little bit different or perhaps more simply, if we don't know as Christians what God requires of church elders because we haven't studied it very carefully ourselves, then how could we possibly hope to install elders that actually fit into God's plan for his church? So there's one reason. Number two, each Christian needs biblical guidelines for the type of leaders that God calls them to follow. Let's say you decided tomorrow to move all the way across the country. And you're going to want to find a, another biblical church to join there, wherever that is, right? But one thing you're going to have to assess in that church is, does this church have biblically qualified elders? You want to join somewhere that takes God's word seriously, including what it says about eldership, right? So... In order for us to even assess that, when we're looking for a church, well, we have to know what the guidelines and the requirements are, right? And then the third reason I had listed here is that each Christian is responsible before God to keep all church leaders, such as elders, accountable. I don't like bringing this type of thing up, but how many big-name pastors have you heard about falling in some major moral scandal and they leave that church or they're dismissed by that church, maybe, and then they just start pastoring another church pretty much immediately. By knowing the biblical qualifications of elders, we learn from Scripture that there are some things that disqualify you from church leadership according to the word of God. So if a church leader, for instance, were to blatantly disqualify themselves, let's say they had an affair on their wife, for instance, it is the church's responsibility to not let him continue pastoring there. It's each Christian's job to, to take God's word seriously in this matter, right? So I... I hope you see the value in studying this. We could list more. That was just three general ones that I hope helped you see. Okay, you got me now. Okay, I need to know this. Tell me. Okay, let's do that. I hope you see the value in studying this. We all need to know it. So you'll hear me uh, today read from several different passages and eventually, we will get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible there and hold it, that'll be fine. Just bear with me if it is a few minutes before we actually get to reading that, okay? 1 Timothy 3 is, is where you're welcome to open your Bible to. Here is uh, four 
big areas that we'll be talking about today. One, the biblical office of elder. Two, the biblical pattern of eldership, which is a plurality. Three, the biblical qualifications for elders. And four, the blessing of elders. So let's go down the list. Number one, the biblical office of elder. Under this heading, I just want to briefly try to explain and answer questions like this. What is an elder? Uh, What are the differences also between a deacon and an elder? Are they the same? Are they the same office? Are they different offices? Is it just semantics? One church calls it, excuse me, deacons, while another calls it elders. What, what are the differences there or similarities? What is the responsibilities of an elder? So we're going to try to cover things of that nature under this heading. I think maybe the most helpful place to start is by making the distinction between deacons and elders because it will help us understand what an elder even is if we make that distinction. Spoiler alert, the offices are two different offices. It is not a matter of semantics of what one church calls it this, another calls it that. We're not so much worried about what churches call it. We're worried about what the Bible teaches, right? So in the Bible, there are two distinct offices of church leadership, elder and deacon. And if we look at, if you have your Bible there open already, we won't read the actual text, but you could even look at the headings in your modern Bibles and see this in just a moment. 1 Timothy is a book that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to his young spiritual son, Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and... Paul writes this pastoral letter to him. We call them the pastoral epistles. This is one of them. He wrote it to help Timothy know some things, not only to help Timothy, but help us, help Christians for all time know some things about uh, proper worship, um, qualifications for leaders, advice about confronting false teachers, Instruction on how to treat different individuals within the church. Things of that nature is what this letter is about. And if you look at even the headings in your Bible, and if your Bible doesn't have headings, you can skim it and still find this to be the case. You'll notice that in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verses 1 to 7 deal with the qualifications of elders. Or your Bible might say overseers. And we'll get to that terminology in just a moment. But that's verses 1 to 7. Then verses 8 to 13 list out the the qualifications for deacons. And although they are very similar lists, they are not the same. What does that tell us? Well, for one, it tells us that deacons and elders are not the same office. They are two distinct offices within the church with slightly different qualifications. Another place uh, where we see that distinction, this this, um, elder-deacon distinction, is in Acts chapter 6. Let me just summarize what's happening there. I I actually encourage you to read that passage uh, later for yourself, but for now, for time's sake, I'll just paraphrase it. In Acts 6, we have this situation in the early church where there was a brewing potential for disunity. They had a food distribution going on for the widows of the church. And there were Jewish widows and there were Greek widows or Gentile widows. And for some reason, we don't know all the reasons, the Greek widows were being neglected in that distribution. And so this complaint arose, and here's how the apostles, the leaders of the church, dealt with that problem. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And that word 
that we translate into English as serve tables is the very Greek word that we get the word deacon from. So they said, church, pick out seven men who have a good reputation, who are wise, who are full of the Spirit, and we will appoint them to this duty to make sure that the widows are taken care of well. And of course, you know, the list of those seven men, the, probably the most famous one is Stephen, who became the first um, recorded Christian martyr. That's recorded in Acts chapter 7. But notice there the distinction between the spiritual needs of the church and the temporal or material needs of the church. I think that gets to the basic distinction between elders and deacons. The apostles there were functioning like elders. They were the spiritual leaders of the church. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's Acts 6.4. And the deacons were the material servant leaders of the church. The very word deacon means servant. And so, praise God that in his wisdom, he set this up the way that he did. Because by putting deacons in charge of the feeding of the widows, their physical food, it allowed the entire church to be continued to be fed spiritual food. It did not drag the apostles away, in other words, from their primary duty, which was to pray for their people and for themselves and for the church and to preach God's word. It did not pull them away from those primary duties. Uh, Phil Newton has a book called Elders in the Life of the Church, and he comes to the end of a section where he's summarizing some of the very things that we've been talking about, and he says this, Biblically, therefore, deacons do take care of the temporal matters of the church life so that the elders are free to concentrate on spiritual matters. That sums up the the concept, the distinction very well based on Acts chapter 6 there. Now, let's just, um, let's define a little bit what an elder actually is. What is an elder? About the most simple definition I could give is just an elder is a spiritual leader of God's flock. Pretty simple. And Perhaps his responsibilities are made more clear by the various terms that are used of that office. And there's several terms that are used interchangeably by the New Testament writers to refer to the same office of elder. Maybe you've noticed these words as you've read through your New Testament. Here they are. Elder, overseer, or bishop, shepherd, Pastor, those are all terms that the Bible uses interchangeably for the same office, okay? In other words, if you refer to an elder, you're automatically referring biblically to a pastor, to a shepherd, to an overseer of God's flock. Let me uh, also not make that claim without showing you a couple of examples in Scripture of this. One is found in... Um, Acts chapter 20. If you're a quick Bible finder, you can hold your place in 1 Timothy 3 and flip over there to Acts chapter 20. I'll, I'll try to bring up some of the key verses here in a minute, though, on the screen if you don't want to flip there. In Acts 20, though, we have... Uh, it's a very touching passage. We have Paul saying his goodbyes to the elders of the Ephesian church. And he tell, he just, he bears his soul to them because he knows he will never see them again. Not in this life. And in verse 17, I'm just trying to point out how the Bible uses these terms interchangeably. In verse 17 it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. I underline elders there on the screen so we can compare the interchangeableness of these terms. 
So he's, he called the elders of the church to him. And as I said, he speaks to them as a man who will never see them again in this life. They weep together. He tells them everything he wanted to tell them as if this was the last thing he would say to them. It's an extremely touching passage if you hadn't read it in a while. But if we go down to verse 28, we read these words from Paul to those same elders. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for, same word that means shepherd, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Do you see how the Bible uses these terms interchangeably? Uh, It's the same office. He's addressing the elders, but he calls them also overseers. He calls them shepherds which is the same term, by the way, for pastor as well. It's the same Greek word. So elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor, all interchangeable terms to refer to the office of elder. Here's one more example from 1 Peter 5. Um, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 2 says this, So I exhort the elders among you, this is Peter, of course, writing. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's the term overseer again. So an elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, same thing. Uh, And if we were to maybe look at those and say, okay, what does that tell us about his responsibilities? Well, he's an elder in the sense that he is to be a mature believer. Not perfect, but mature. An example to the flock. He is a pastor slash shepherd in the sense that he cares for and feeds and protects God's sheep. And he's to be an overseer in the sense that he provides biblical oversight into all the spiritual matters of the church and all of its resources in order to steer the church of God toward obeying him and bringing him glory. So there is the biblical office of elder in a nutshell. So if the Lord leads us to vote in a new elder... He will be another pastor to you. Don't know if you realize it or thought of it that way. He will be another shepherd to you. He will be another overseer to you. He won't be on staff, maybe, in the sense that he draws his income from that work, but he will be functioning essentially the same as a pastor. He quite literally will be, if voted in, biblically speaking, one of your pastors, okay? I hope that's helpful. Big point number two today, the biblical pattern of elders. It is a plurality that we see. When we read about elders in the New Testament, the word is almost always in the plural. I don't know if you've noticed that before. Not every time, but the vast majority of times it is in the plural. And so there seems to be, it's not that there's a, a verse that says, thou shalt have a plurality of elders. We just notice there is a consistent pattern of plurality. Not one elder in a church, but multiple. In Acts uh, 14.23, it says this about uh, Paul and Barnabas. It says, and when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, elders in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Not that they appointed an elder for them in every church, but they appointed elders, plural. Titus 1.5 is another example. Titus is a letter that Paul wrote to another pastor named Titus, and he says, 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural again, in every town as I directed you. We could go on and on with lots of examples about the plurality. We won't labor to prove a point that hopefully is proven already. But the point here is that that is the overwhelming pattern in the New Testament. It is to have a plurality of elders shepherding and leading God's church. And again, God was very wise to set it up this way. And we will see various ways and how that wisdom plays itself out a little bit later. But let's move on to the big point number three, the biblical qualifications. I told you we'd get to 1 Timothy 3 in a minute. Um, If it is God's desire to have his church, his bride, be spiritually led by elders then it makes total sense that he would want to set up some qualifications for those elders to protect his people from bad leaders, right? So we see here a list of some qualifications that a man must meet in order to be an elder in God's church. very similar list, by the way, is found in Titus 1. If you want to take that down, if you're jotting notes, you may want to read Titus 1 and compare it with 1 Timothy 3 later. So I'd like to read the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3, and then we'll talk about them just a little bit. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, or elder, as we've already seen, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So let's just briefly go through this list and and make some very, some of them very brief comments, others just a hair longer, but I want to make sure we understand what this is saying. Here's the entire list. Let's go through them quickly as we can. Aspiration. A man must actually desire to shepherd God's flock. It's not, we think you should do it, Man, and we want to pressure you to do so. If he doesn't have the desire, he's not meant to be an elder. And it says that it is a noble task to be carrying out. It is a task. No doubt it is a task, but it is a noble task. I am honored to be your pastor. And it is weighty, and it is... a Mentally draining sometimes and challenging in many ways, but there is also a massive joy and um, satisfaction to it. I, I don't think there's anything more meaningful or needed in this world than trying to prepare people to meet God or building up the body of Christ for His glory. That is a noble task. That is the privilege of an elder, and I'm thankful for that privilege. But the man must want to do this. He shouldn't have to have his leg twisted. Peter said he shouldn't do it under compulsion, but he should do it willingly. 1 Peter 5, 2. And while we're talking about aspiration, let's, let's hit something else related to that. Aspiration by itself 
is not enough. A person can want to be an elder, but not be fit to be one. And that's where other factors come into play, right? There's a certain calling that comes with it. Although some perhaps can get carried away with what we mean by calling. I think a simple explanation of this calling is found in Acts 20 again. In that passage where Paul's talking to those Ephesian elders, he says that the Holy Spirit made them overseers. Acts 20, 28. So they were given a desire to shepherd God's flock, but it wasn't a selfish desire. It was one put there by the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, they were called to that work. That's the, um, we might call it the internal call by God in the man's heart. But then there's also an external call that God's people have to recognize as well. There's a corporate aspect to this. Um, The church's job is to identify men in their midst who have been made elders by the Holy Spirit of God. He's called them. He's given them the desire. He's equipped them to meet the qualifications. And the church's job is to recognize and affirm those men. And so, basically, just to sum up that point, there's an aspiration to do this in the man's heart, which comes from the Lord and is affirmed and recognized as being legitimate by the congregation. That was a lot of explanation on that one. Others will be shorter and more self-explanatory, okay? The next one says he's got to be above reproach. That's sort of like, that's sort of like an, a blanket umbrella statement that almost everything else falls under. Above reproach is like the idea, it carries the idea of being blameless. And that can't mean sinless because then every human being on the planet would be disqualified and thus the biblical office of elder does not exist, at least in reality, right? But what it does mean is that this man has no charge of serious wrongdoing that can be brought against him. He does not have a tarnished reputation. And most of the rest of the qualifications, as I said, fall under that big idea of being above reproach. And these are, these are character qualities. Next, it says he's the husband of one wife. So if the man is married, he's faithful to his wife. There's been no infidelity there. Of course, that would raise... Concerns for divorced men, perhaps. I I don't believe that this is teaching that any divorce automatically disqualifies somebody for eldership. I think each situation would have to be looked at, carefully considered. Like, was he even a Christian when he was divorced? Uh, Did his wife leave him? Was there infidelity on her part? Was it anything having to do with his part? All those things can go into account and I think should be carefully considered by a church. But overall, this phrase means he must be faithful to his wife. A faithful man to his wife. He is is like the embodiment of Hebrews 13.4 where it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. He is an example of sexual fidelity to his marriage. By the way, we do have to point out here that you know, while we're going through these qualifications that God has called men to the office of elder rather than women. It is the husband of one woman, not the wife of one husband, right, in the text. Also, if you factor in 1 Timothy 2.12 where, where Paul says that women are not to exercise authority over a man in the church. That plays into this as well. And in our day, some people bristle at that concept, but that is not a slight to women by God or by Paul. It is a distinction of roles that God has made between the genders. Just like men are to be the spiritual leaders of their homes, exercising oversight over their families. Men are also to be the spiritual leaders of the church. And women serve in all sorts of vital aspects of the church, but one of them is not the office of elder. 
And when we are tempted to bristle at God's good distinctions and roles, it's probably just the product of being taught by our ungodly culture, to be honest. Or by a bias in our own thinking that maybe came about by seeing gender roles enforced in a heavy-handed, bad example kind of way. That's possible too. But God's distinctions are good distinctions. He came up with them. There are things that God made women to do that men cannot do and vice versa. So God's ideas are good and profitable for us all. Let's not be shy or embarrassed about what he says at all. Okay. Let's, uh, let's combine some of the next ones as we move on. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Sober-minded means temperate. The man is not given to excess in any area of his life. He's restrained in conduct. He's level-headed. Self-controlled means sensible, sound-minded, or being of sound mind. He doesn't have these sudden impulses that causes him to lose control of himself. And respectable means honorable. His, his behavior is virtuous. Okay? It also says hospitable. That word literally means a friend to strangers. And maybe some historical background helps right here. Um, in this time period, they didn't have all the luxuries that we have. Stopping off at a hotel wherever you want, right? There wasn't any organized... Um, large-scale social welfare helps to widows or orphans. Uh, widows and orphans were reliant on the care of their relatives and their friends. Poverty and hunger were more rampant than we experienced in our first world bubble, right? And Christians had to do a lot of traveling to get messages out to different parts of the world. And so they would frequently need places to stay on their journey. And they would need their fellow Christians to help them. And they would need to help these people in need. And for an elder to be hospitable, it's saying he is to be an example in that area. So how does that, with that historical example, how does that apply to our day? Well, he's welcoming to all people. He doesn't quarantine himself off to one clique of people. He associates with all sorts of people, especially in the church. He, he wants to spend time with his brothers and sisters. Maybe he opens up his home for them to fellowship there or he invites them out to eat with him or whatever the case may be. Those are all aspects of hospitality in which he is supposed to be an example. Next it says, able to teach. This means that he knows the doctrines of the Bible well enough to effectively communicate them to others in a way that they can understand it. He has a certain level of skill in teaching. And it does not mean, thankfully, that you have to be on the level of Charles Spurgeon or John Piper or something of that nature. It doesn't mean he has to even be able to speak fluently in front of large crowds. Teaching happens in all sorts of groups, large groups, small groups. It even happens in one-on-one -on -one situations. So the bottom line is, does this man have the ability to teach God's Word to people faithfully and clearly? And just a quick note right there. I should have put a little asterisk next to that one on the slide up there. But this particular qualification is different from the qualification list of deacons. Remember I said that before. Well, there's one major difference. Their responsibilities are different. Deacons are not required to be able to teach, whereas elders are. Okay? Elders are to be uh, ministers of the Word of God. And it doesn't always happen behind a pulpit on Sunday morning, but they are ministers of God's Word to the church. It also says, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Oh, man. What does alcohol do to a man? 
It alters his mental state. His thinking is altered. His decision-making is altered. Therefore, by God's standard, he should not be given to drinking too much alcohol. And Scripture, of course, clearly calls drunkenness a sin in Ephesians 5, a plain command to not be drunk with wine. So therefore, an elder must not be a drunkard. He also can't be violent. There's something that sometimes happens when someone's drunk, right? Some of these are a little bit related. He's not to be violent. He's, he's supposed to be gentle. Uh, think of the Lord Jesus, how he described himself. He said, I am gentle and lowly in heart in Matthew 11. So an elder would be like his master. He would be gentle. He would not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. As Matthew 12, 20 says. In other words, he's not, he's not harsh with people. He's patient and gentle with people. And it says he's not a quarrelsome person. In other words, he doesn't delight in getting into arguments. He will engage in good arguments for the sake of the kingdom of God. For, for instance, in an apologetic context, when he's uh, talking with an unbeliever or some sort. But he is not a contentious person. He is not a contrarian type of person, always being contrary. That is not him. He's not quarrelsome. He's not uh, given to that demeanor. He's peaceable. It also says he's not a lover of money. Pretty obvious, I guess. Not much explanation there needed, but he's not greedy. He's not consumed with making money. He does not have a desire to be rich, which may cause him to fall and be pierced through with many sorrows, as one letter says in the New Testament. It also says he's a good manager of his own household. And verse 5 says why, and it makes perfect sense, right? If he cannot manage his own household well, how can he care for God's church? So the man has to be a, a conscientious father to his children he's involved and it says he keeps his children submissive he is not like the anti-type Eli in the Old Testament who let his sons do just whatever they wanted and it ended up in disaster it says he did not restrain them when they blasphemed God 1 Samuel 3.13 yet the man doesn't bring his children into submissiveness with a heavy hand because Ephesians 5 tells fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I like what um, William Hendrickson says right here. Let me read you a quote by him. He says, though authority must be exercised, this must be done with true dignity. That is... It must be done in such a manner that the father's firmness makes it advisable for children to obey, that his wisdom makes it natural for a child to obey, and that his love makes it pleasure for a child to obey. I like that. Wise, firm, loving authority in his family. That captures the man's parenting well. Um, in the parallel passage, in Titus uh, 1, it says that his children must be faithful. Let me comment on that just a minute. Some translations say they must be believers. But the word there actually is literally faithful. And I wanted to comment on that because I don't think that that means a man is disqualified from being an elder if all of his children are not Christians. Salvation's not up to the parent, right? It's up to God. A parent can do nothing to guarantee that their children will embrace Christ. Now, they play an essential role. They bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They are to tell them the gospel, point them to Christ, tell them about their sin and how they need Christ and so forth and so on, day after day after day. But even if he does that faithfully for years, there is no guarantee that they will actually believe for themselves. Also, if you think about it, if this 
If this was saying in Titus 1 that a man's children must be believers, then elders with young children who are not yet saved, who don't even know the gospel yet well enough to believe, they would be disqualified as well. So I don't think it means that his children have, has to be believers in Titus 1. I think what it means is what the root word is conveying there. They're faithful children. They're not wild They're not rebellious, lawless children who have no regard for the parent's authority, reflecting that the man cannot manage his own household well. I think that's what it means. It also says, back to 1 Timothy 3, to our list, he is not a recent convert. An elder cannot be a man who was just recently saved. They need to have learned and have sat under sound teaching and they need to be discipled themselves under the leadership of other elders before they become one themselves. And Paul says there in verse 6 that that would result, if you made a new convert an elder, it would result in him being puffed up with conceit and falling prey to the devil. A man must be given time to become mature in the faith before he should be an elder in God's church. It also says, well thought of by outsiders. He needs to have a good reputation in the community. It would be, obviously, it would be dishonoring to Christ for a hypocrite to become an elder in the church. While unbelievers on the outside who may have worked with the man at some point, let's say, they're saying, he's an elder in your church? Wow, they don't know that guy too well. They see how he talks to people, how he treats people on the job. That man's a hypocrite. That's why it says he must be thought of well by outsiders. He must be someone who's respected. Otherwise, it says he'll fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil again. In other words, he might begin to think, if I can get away with this conduct and still be elected as an overseer or elder, well, I can get away with anything then. He becomes very ripe for a fall, right? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. So there's the qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3. I could have covered them quicker, perhaps, and only commented a little bit here and there, but to be honest, I still feel like I skated over the top of them. So I hope that you've read them before today and thought about them and prayed over them as I've asked you all to do, and I'm sure you have. Let me close with this last big point, number four, the blessing of elders. And in a way, I'm meaning that in this way, the practical benefits of a plurality of elders. When we follow God's guidelines and we listen to the Spirit of God and we only recognize biblically qualified and equipped men to lead the church, the benefits are enormous to the church. I'm just going to list a few without trying to elaborate too much. Here's one. It balances pastoral weaknesses. One man does not have everything it takes, skill-wise, to shepherd God's church. Other qualified men come in in God's timing, and he equips them and raises them up, and the congregation recognizes them, And they supplement each other's weaknesses. You will be shepherded better by multiple shepherds. Listen to Phil Newton once more with this quote. Precisely here do we find the wisdom of the New Testament pattern of plural leadership. No one man possesses all the gifts necessary for leading a congregation. Some men are endowed with strong pulpit gifts but lack effective pastoral skills. Others excel in pastoral work of visiting and counseling but are not strong when it comes to pulpit exposition. 
Some have unusual abilities in organizing and administrating the ministries of the church, but falter in pulpit and counseling skills. Some, to be sure, are multi-gifted and capable of doing different things, but the strain of tending to the entire ministry, to the entire ministry needs of the church, can quickly deplete even the most gifted man. Plurality of eldership balances pastoral weaknesses to the benefit of everyone in the church. Next, it adds pastoral wisdom. Very much related to what I just said. Proverbs says, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. One man may not see everything clearly. They may not be able to see all the angles to a certain situation. They may not consider certain things. But when you bring in other godly men, other qualified elders, now the wisdom factor goes way up. More angles are thought of. More consequences are considered if we take this path or that one or that one. And better and and more prudent and more wise decisions are made. Here's another one. It enables pastoral accountability. Elders are being accountable to the church as a whole, but also to one another. Elders are going to be communicating with each each other regularly. They'll make sure that each other are obeying the Lord. that, That they're walking closely with Him. That they're staying motivated. And there's less of a chance of a pastor just sort of skating by in his spiritual disciplines, if other elders are checking in on him saying, hey, what you reading? What you been learning in your, in your Bible reading? How's your prayer life going? So on and so forth. There's accountability there with, with a plurality of elders. Another one is, it equips the church for more effective corrective discipline. There comes a time when a church may need to discipline a member by confronting them over an unrepentant sin. Jesus himself tells us to do this. This is not a hateful thing that somebody made up who was a hot-headed pastor or something. This is Jesus' plan for his church, and he lays out the guidelines for it in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and so forth. It's done in a very private, non-embarrassing way. And only when it becomes, only when the person becomes so obstinate that they will not listen and their unrepentance hardens, only then does it become public. Jesus was very sensitive in how this is done. But church discipline is a way that we help one another walk with God. That's one reason to become a church member among many. You should want to be a member of a church that does church discipline because that means there's less hypocrites in your church and there's less chance of you or I straying off into some sin without anyone trying to warn us or save us. God is honored in both of those things. When we warn each other, we try to help each other. We try to steer each other back. Restore one another's relationships with Christ. And when the time comes to carry out this corrective discipline, if it ever has to happen, it is wise to have a plurality of elders because it makes their statements to that unrepentant person more credible. Nobody can say, that pastor's got it out for me, man. He needs to just mind his own business. How dare he come to me with telling me I need to repent of so-and-so. He must be an arrogant you-know-what, you know. If one guy as the pastor is doing that, that might be a temptation to think that way on the receiving end. But when there's multiple godly men who have been recognized by the church all coming after this unrepentant person in love, then there's more of a chance of There's less of a chance of being misunderstood, I think. And there's more of a chance of that person going, okay, maybe I'm wrong here. This isn't just one guy having it out for me. These guys are in agreement. They're they're trying to help me. 
We could, we could come up with so many more reasons why God was wise to give us plural leadership. Let me just have one more for you today. It helps bear the burden. Being an elder means certain, it means bearing certain burdens that others in the church don't have to bear. And burdens carried by yourself over an extended period of time can become very wearying. And what a great help it can be for the burden to be shared by multiple elders. It prevents burnout. It keeps the elders sane. It, it's better for their families because they're not having to bear everything alone and take all that stress home to them. That's massive. So there it is. In a nutshell, not every detail by any means of the, any stretch of the imagination, but there it is in a nutshell. What an elder is, what the differences are in deacons and elders, the pattern of plurality, the qualifications, and some practical benefits or the blessings of having a plural eldership. I hope that you see what a gift plural eldership is. It is a gift from God to his church, and we all benefit from it, every one of us. We're all better taken care of. We're all better led and nurtured and shepherded and taught. So I hope you see it that way. Let's pray together now. <clears throat> Father, we do see your wisdom and how you've designed the leadership structure of your church and these, this office of elder. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to grow in our understanding and our submission to your will in this. Lord, Continue to raise up godly men as elders and deacons in this church. Lord, there may be some here that's already on that path, and you're steadily bringing them along. Help us to recognize them when the time comes. Help us, to be of all, help us all to be of one accord in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.